This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 2nd, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, antibody-based testing for prior infection with COVID-19 is increasingly being employed in many areas, but it's been very unclear how to interpret the results of the tests. For one thing, different tests have different performance characteristics, so it's hard to compare one to another. But in addition, we really don't know how to understand the significance of having an antibody response once it's been measured. We've just published a large study from Iceland that looked at serologic responses. What did we learn from that study? Steve, first, I'd like to reemphasize your first point. There are a lot of antibody tests out there, and many of them have received some sort of authorization from the FDA or other regulatory authorities. These vary quite a bit, though, in sensitivity and specificity. So I'd say that these assays are pretty preliminary, as they're based on relatively small numbers of samples and controls. And so we don't know how precise those values are for almost any of the tests we're using. And though those values look good, generally in the 90s, sometimes in the high 90s percent for sensitivity and specificity, the value of a test, even a good test, really depends on how prevalent the disease is in the community that you're testing. So while the numbers might sound good, the positive predictive value, which is usually what we're most concerned about, are usually not that impressive depending on the setting that they're used in. And that's important when you look at the study in Iceland. They were faced with the same issue that all investigators are faced with, that the tests are far from perfect. So instead of coming up with yet another test and trying to prove that it was better than the existing ones, they took a sort of vote. So for all the more than 30,000 people they tested, they did at least two commercial assays. And these assays were from two different suppliers, one of which measured antibodies, total immunoglobulin to the viral nucleoprotein, and the other which measures total immunoglobulin to a second viral protein, actually the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. And to be considered seropositive, individuals had to be positive in both assays. So that's a pretty good way of making sure that your positives really are positives. And I think it gives you very reliable numbers. Actually, in truth, their false positive rate was pretty low, and they measured that in a couple of ways. And the number of people who were positive on a single test but not both was also very low, suggesting that single assays, at least the ones that they employed, are pretty good. In, in addition to those assays, they also, for some of the patients, they did four other assays which measured specific immunoglobulin subtypes against each of the proteins. And that they could use to measure quantitatively each of the subtypes and the kinetics of their appearance and disappearance. So they tested a lot of people and the scheme is rather complicated because they asked lots of different questions and needed different groups to ask those questions. So they recruited patients who had previous infection and were documented positive by PCR. And those included people who are hospitalized, in other words, acutely ill, which allowed them to look at the early kinetics of antibody formation and people who had recovered from disease, which allowed them to look at the decay of the antibody response over time. And then they looked at a number of groups without known infection. That included a high-risk group, which was more than 4,000 people who were placed into quarantine because of presumed exposure 
to an infected individual, and then another 20,000 people who were used to try to figure out how much spread had occurred and had not been diagnosed. Eric, you covered a lot of ground in framing what we learned from this report and how they approached the investigation. I think it's important to step back and just think about testing and how we develop testing for a novel pathogen. And a key issue is what's the gold standard and how confident are we are that they are measuring what they think they are measuring. And your point that measuring things in different ways adds confidence that they are probably correct in determining who was and wasn't infected. But this is a fundamental problem of any novel diagnostic, is what's the gold standard? In this setting, one also then thinks about testing in general. Testing for acute infection, we typically rely on direct viral detection, be it RNA or antigen. And then we also can look for footprints of the response to the virus, which is the immune response, which is what these reports are looking at, which is the antibody response, and then different ways of looking at the IgG response, potentially to different epitopes or antigens. And in doing this, we have to remember that different sites of sampling may have different inhibitors or different elements that may impact the quality of the testing, be it the nasopharynx, the anterior nares, the oropharynx, the blood. And all of these things may impact how different tests perform in different fluids and cavities. And so we have to just be very careful in how we interpret new tests as they emerge until there is lots of use and validation. Having said that, what these investigators did is a very systematic way to help establish how a given set of tests behave. Yeah, and that's a very good point, Lindsay. Remember, too, that they were optimizing for positives. And by demanding multiple tests be positive, they undoubtedly end up missing some positives who they end up calling negative people who probably really were positive, who were positive on one test and marginal on another or even negative on another. And that's a trade-off they decided to make. So they were optimizing for positives. And that worked pretty well. Uh, I didn't mention the fact that they tested a lot of pre-COVID sera and showed that there were no positives by their definition in that group. They also looked shortly before the outbreak had occurred in Iceland, but after it had occurred in the rest of the world, to see had they missed cases, were there cases out there that no one saw? It's a relatively small group, so I don't think they can absolutely conclude that there were none out there, but there were no positives in that group. So it seems like the test criteria they've picked are excellent for positive, honestly, but we don't know how good they are at predicting negatives. And that speaks to how one wants to use testing. And so testing should be optimized for the questions at hand, which may slant it towards greater sensitivity or greater specificity. And there's nothing wrong with that. We just have to understand the approach of the question and therefore how the diagnostics are optimized and where cutoffs are set and other types of parameters impact the calls as the positive negative. As you described the study, it's clear that they collected a tremendous amount of data. What did we learn from it all? What questions are answered? Well, there were a lot of questions, uh, so let's go through uh, some of them. 
First, the test worked pretty good. As Lindsay had just discussed, they decided to optimize specificity over sensitivity, and their specificity seemed to be good. As I was saying, they had no positive tests in their what we could call control samples, uh, people tested before the COVID outbreak had occurred. And in their positive controls, which were people who had disease, they had very high rates of seroconversion of the people with known PCR positive disease who were hospitalized, 45 out of 48 were positive in both tests. So they did a pretty good job of capturing known positives. And in those who had recovered from disease, they had a similarly high positivity rate. 1,100 of the 1,200 patients they tested were seropositive, putting their rates at above 90% for both of the groups with known disease. And that included both people with asymptomatic and symptomatic disease. The rate of seropositivity was very much lower for people who were quarantined because of known exposure, coming out at about 3%. And there was a gradient of exposure. So people who had a household contact and therefore might be considered to be at highest risk had a much higher rate of seropositivity than those who did not have a household contact or other forms of contact and had been quarantined. And in the general population, the seropositivity rates, again, defined by having two positive assays, were very much lower, down in the 0.2 to 0.5% rate. So using these numbers, the investigators extrapolated with modeling to suggest that about 1% of the population had been infected with SARS-CoV-2 prior to this sampling. I mean, as you point out, Eric, their use of samples pre-pandemic as controls sort of helps us understand key concerns such as cross-reactivity, such as with other coronaviruses. And that's part of what has to be carefully thought about as new tests emerge is do they really behave the way we think they do? And do we understand how they may cross-react or detect other things besides the epitopes of interest? And these types of systematic assessments help reassure us that those types of assay inaccuracies have been minimized. And then we're left with data which suggests some degree of transmission that's been going on without necessarily clinical awareness, which is not a surprise, as that is part of the challenge with SARS-CoV-2, is the amount of subclinical spread that allows the transmission to go on and quarantine or other measures to be more difficult to design and implement. Yeah, this is absolutely true that there is spread that we can't detect. And that's even true in Iceland, which is a unique setting. Remember, there are a couple of things about Iceland. First off, given the outstanding genetics capacity in Iceland, because this has been a sort of focus of genetic studies in the past, there was rapid uptake and rapid access to PCR testing. So they had a very good idea of the infection rate, certainly in diseased individuals. And there was a lot of surveillance, far more than being done in almost any other country, probably most in the world, of asymptomatic people. And in addition, they rolled out this serologic testing relatively early and very carefully, as we've seen. And then thirdly, the unusual nature of Iceland, which is that it's an island, it's relatively remote in that the access can be controlled, and there were a limited number of 
introductions of disease once the disease became established or a limited number of new introductions. So we're really looking primarily at community transmission here. So it's a special population and we can learn a lot about the biology, but I wouldn't take the numbers of course to mean anything for any other population. The 1% of the population being infected, for example, that is very unlikely to be true anywhere else. No, your point's well taken that with putatively silent transmission, a lot has to do with when and where it's introduced, what control measures are in place as to how much transmission goes on. So these data give us a snapshot in Iceland, which is quite informative, but as you point out, Eric, speaks to uniquely what was going on in that country over this period of time, which includes how isolated they are in certain ways and what kind of public health programs and measures they had ongoing at the time. There's been a lot of concern about antibody titers declining rapidly over time in COVID-19. So in this group of Icelandic patients with known infection, how stable were those antibody levels? So the results of this study were a little bit different from some of the studies that have been published. We expect antibodies to behave in a certain way with other acute infections. And in fact, in this study, the antibody levels came out pretty much the way we'd expect for a sort of standard infection in that the IgM levels rose rapidly and then fell over time. And IgG levels took a little bit longer to go up, but then they remained relatively constant for the duration of the study. The duration of the study was relatively short. Their last time point for IgG was somewhere less than 120 days, but nevertheless, it was fairly constant. And this is, as I said, a bit different from what others have found. But as pointed out in Dr. Alter's accompanying editorial, there could be several reasons for this. It is reassuring that antibody levels do seem to persist on a population-wide basis as in this study. Of course, we don't know the significance of that because we don't know that they correlate with protection. But if they end up doing so, it would suggest that the protection might persist for at least a few months. I mean, I think that there's several important considerations here, as you point out, Eric. One is we just have much to learn. And data are preliminary by their nature because we've only known about this organism for eight months, nine months. We've only been systematically studying it outside of China for six, seven months. Therefore, any durability in any country and population will be kinetically limited by the reality of how new this pandemic is. It does also highlight that we need to generate additional data sets to define parameters. Any individual study in any small group may have factors that are not fully appreciated about the infection in that group, why the cohort was assembled and therefore some aspects of the biology of what's being studied. And so additional data like these, I think, add to our understanding of immune responses, durability, although as you point out, Eric, durability only for three months, six months, nine months, a year will be incredibly valuable, but we have to wait for that by definition. And then what immune responses do we care about? You know, are the antibodies the answer, the right kind of antibodies? T-cell responses, there's much in the immune response that we need to understand 
in addition to the durability of an antibody response. And so I look forward to additional data sets emerging that help us understand the immune response, its complexity, what's protective, and how long it lasts. And that over the next three, six months will give us you know, nine, 12 months worth of follow-up as opposed to three months. And it's just a matter of time to improve our understanding across groups and populations. We also published a study today of a new vaccine candidate. What do we learn about this one? Well, this one is similar to most existing vaccines in that it's a purified protein. This one is the full-length spike protein that contains a couple of mutations which protect it against proteases so that it's stable in the blood and also the mutation which locks it into the prefusion state, which has been present in most of the other vaccines. The prefusion confirmation is probably the antigen that's important for infection. And as usual for protein vaccines, it's mixed with an adjuvant, which is a compound which produces kind of nonspecific inflammatory response, which enhances the immunogenicity of the protein. Like the other vaccine studies we've seen, this is an early phase study, which was really set to try to figure out if the vaccine was safe and whether it induced the kind of immune response that we wanted to do in a very small number of patients and to try to figure out what dose of the vaccine should be given. In this, recipients received placebo or vaccine, and they could have received either the adjuvant or no adjuvant in combination to see which combination worked best. They were given two injections spaced in three weeks. And the vaccine produced the sorts of safety signals that we generally see for vaccines. Lots of local reactions, most of them mild, and some systemic symptoms, which look like flu-like symptoms. And not surprisingly, most of those were more common in people administered the adjuvant along with the vaccine rather than the vaccine antigen alone. Aside from one case of what appeared to be an unrelated cellulitis, all the participants were able to receive a second dose, and none of the safety signals met the investigator's predetermined definition of a serious adverse event. So it was reasonably well tolerated. In, in general, the vaccine induced the types of antibody responses that we've seen for other vaccines. When it was combined with adjuvant, it was better. And in fact, those responses looked similar to or exceeded the antibody responses that we've seen in natural infection. But once again, we don't know if any of these are predictive of protection. So like the other vaccine candidates, this one needs to be tested in people to see if there is actual protection against disease. I agree, Eric. These types of data are encouraging, but until we have properly conducted efficacy trials, it's hard for us to determine which of the immune parameters elicited are truly protective. And those studies are underway and we look forward to their results. One important point, I mean, I know, Lindsay, that you're involved with these studies and don't want to discuss them too much, but I think an important point is that there are studies going on in parallel of multiple vaccines. At least a few have already started. And the idea of Operation Warp Speed, at least, is to try different classes of vaccines, including this general class of inactivated subunit vaccines. So we should be able to get data to compare a lot of these vaccines in these late phase trials as well. And... You know, your point's well taken, Eric, in that I'm a believer in high-quality, well-designed scientific studies to answer a question, to guide our understanding of what works. The 
issue of a correlate of protection or which immune parameter is most relevant for protection. Many of us look at the neutralization of wild type virus, the PRNT50 or 80, and it's very encouraging when we see these data for different constructs. But ultimately, we'll find out from the human studies, the phase three trials, which of these vaccines protect, hopefully all of them, and which of these immune correlates correlate with that protection, and whether or not it's the same correlate of protection for all of the different concepts. And so we have to stay flexible to follow the science as to what works and which mechanism or mechanisms are at play for the evidence of protection. And the different classes of vaccines allow us the opportunity to understand which mechanisms may or may not be most relevant for protection and scientifically should allow us to expedite iteration to improve whatever it is we learn. And of course, the fact that these vaccines are fairly different from each other gives us more of an opportunity to find one or hopefully more that are adequately safe to be used. So I think having lots of candidates helps us both on the efficacy and safety side. Getting back to the Icelandic study, what's the significance of those findings for vaccine development? A lot of people have looked at the persistence of antibody as a marker for whether or not vaccination will be successful in producing a persistent response that could last for a while and give medium or long-term protection. I think that's quite an extrapolation. This, of course, is reassuring that natural infection does seem to produce antibodies, if antibodies are important, as Lindsay said, that last at least for months and don't really decline substantially during that time. And that would suggest that we can make antibodies that do persist. But vaccines produce a very different response from natural infection anyway. So I would be very careful about such kinds of extrapolation. I think that, Eric, we do know that natural infection does engender an immune response that clears natural infection. So we know a protective response does develop in people who recover from SARS-CoV-2. Which of these parameters are truly protective? Which of them need to be elicited by a vaccine? And which of them need to persist at a high level are all unclear. And we know from other vaccine-preventable pathogens, that waning immunity can be easily boosted either by revaccination or reinfection, and we have an amnestic response. So I think the immune response that leads to protection or that leads to protection from disease, even if you reacquire infection, is not so clear. And it's something that we have to be mindful of as we hear about people getting reinfected is that truly reinfection with disease as if they had no immune response? Or when viruses circulate, we all get infected and reinfected and may get auto-boosted. And I think we have to be very careful of how we interpret a waning immune response measured by a given parameter as to what that actually means for protection in that individual or for immune responses that may be protective and are elicited by a vaccine. And I'm certain we will see lots more data addressing all of these issues over the next few months. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.